Good evening. Uh, sitting here with a little bit of a rush. Never was the first one to give a Dharma talk, especially with people like Joseph and Kamala and Greg. So we're going to see that this system settles down in a minute. I'll do the best I can. Um, and I'm going to keep it simple. You know, um, we're just coming to the conclusion of our first day of practice for many and our first day of a iteration of practice for those of you who have been here previously for the last uh, 10 days. And regardless of which category <clears throat> you might fall into, every time we sit down, we're sitting down to a new practice. Because in that moment, the conditions that are coming together have never been experienced before. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, reflections on taking refuge. And in my mind's eye, the simplicity and beauty of the refuges as the first seeds for faith. And we may have some speaking about faith further into the week, but I'm going to really focus on the actual refuges. So for beginning by just really uh, having a lot of uh, mudita and gratitude for your practices. It's felt uh, in this 24 hours um, quite uplifting, and I don't know how it is for you, and even though this adrenaline is pumping, there's also this sense of ease so far, even amidst the transitions and transformations and arrivings and, and all of that. So taking refuge is something that uh, I tend to engage with all the time. You know, Joseph spoke this morning about the simplicity of the anchor and the foundational aspect of the breath and the body. And I kind of hold the refuges that way as well, that it's one of the more um, obvious but maybe thought of in some ways not so exciting as some of the other elements of practice, not so full of juice like some of the other things that uh, can arise as we cultivate and develop these practices. And one of the things that I realized last night um, when I was hearing all of us do our introductions, um, I think I'm the only person here who hasn't been among the teachers who hasn't been to Asia to practice. And like I thought about that because it's, it's, it's not that in this nervous system there's the experience of being in the land, India, of the origination of this practice, of this uh, uh, life-saving possibility that we've all come to engage with in these 10 days. And so my experience, my cultivation, the growth of my practice and my understandings has come through uh, these teachers here. Quote from Rumi, 
Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As a fish out of water hears the waves. Come back. Come back. This turning towards what you deeply love saves you. Understanding the interdependency and conditional nature of all things is essential to awakening. When we set the intention to be skillful and reflect on our choices and their results, we open to a rich area of inquiry that produces ongoing positive effects in our lives. It is skillful and useful to cultivate patience and balance as we walk this path and give ourselves time to grow. We begin by acquiring wisdom and knowledge through gathering and learning the right information. This is done through reading and hearing the Dharma, by participating in Dharma discussions, by thinking, reasoning, and discerning, and through direct experience. Then we digest and metabolize all this information and understanding. And then experiential wisdom arises as we practice mindfulness effectively. All three of these aspects of meditation are essential for insight or Vipassana meditation, as Joseph spoke about this morning a bit. It's important to have the right information, the right motivation, and the right thinking to practice intelligently and effectively. This process of acquiring wisdom is a slow and at times painful or frustrating learning experience. We will make mistakes and get lost sometimes But we cannot be afraid of making mistakes and understand that making mistakes and encountering misunderstanding is a significant way we humans learn. You know, there's something that happens to us as we become adult that somehow we forget that we don't know what we don't know. And that when we're learning something new, we should know it. And this process of this practice encompasses and includes constantly bumping up against not knowing what we don't know. It's actually the more we investigate, the more familiar we become with our hearts and minds, the more open we become to the understanding and knowledge and awareness that the system is constantly changing that there's constantly some new something to be discovered, some new understanding to dawn, some new awareness to arrive. Becoming aware of, carefully looking at, and learning from mistakes and challenges is wisdom at work. With time and practice, we become more and more mindful, and the knowledge and understanding we accumulate becomes more and more accessible, and the mind then acclimates to inclining towards awareness. Then, wisdom and mindfulness work together, 
leading to the capacity for more insight to arise. The practice of mindfulness will become a central organizing principle of our lives and there will be a transformation of mind and heart and our view and understanding of the world will never be the same again. No matter how experienced you are or how new you are to this practice, no matter how much knowledge you have or how much information you have acquired, always remain open to the possibility of the deepening of insight and the clarity of heart and mind. Don't limit yourself, always connecting into the forward movement of new and deeper understanding. By stepping onto this path, we first encounter ourselves with these clouded, conditioned minds, and we must ask ourselves, what is my relationship to reality? What is my understanding of life? These questions are investigated and understood from this process of studying and understanding our own minds and hearts. An important thing to note here is that even meditation can be used as an escape or avoidance of life, as a bypass to knowing the truth of things, and not as a practice to attend to life. We create problems out of fear, boredom, loneliness, routine, despair, anger, and a multitude of other mind states, feelings, and emotions, and soon recognize what little understanding we have of ourselves or the environments we live in, and how so much of our behavior, our actions, our thoughts are an effort to find and maintain a little happiness and peace in our lives. This journey called life, with its ups and downs and all arounds, can be transformed, and a shift from this reality to one of real peace, ease, and freedom becomes possible when we can look and feel what is so and understand with clear seeing, this is how it is now. We come to know that it is not just about acquiring knowledge or seeing life in abstraction, but about simply understanding of what it is to be and live as a human being. It's probably fair to say that for many of us, we come to this practice of meditation out of a need to understand ourselves, the need to clarify the confusion we live in. Many of us want to be free. We want to understand. We want to realize, to see for ourselves what it is all about. Often, we have to be fed up with books, we have read, we have listened enough, we've met enough wise people, we've done everything we could to understand, and yet that understanding remains elusive. Secondhand knowledge somehow is not satisfactory and in the end will not lead to the realization of freedom. 
We want to experience for ourselves what all these wise people and all the wise teachings are saying. As long as there is no realization of the truth of our mind, there is no real understanding. In Finding Refuge, Martin Luther King Jr., Viktor Frankl, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Joan of Arc, Harriet Tubman, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Rosa Parks, Tarana Burke, who's the founder of the Me Too movement, the young people at Parkland High School in Florida, Standing Rock, to live the lives that they lived or are living, to leave the legacies they left to exist to end injustice, to survive devastating conditions, to move mountains, to save hundreds of enslaved people through the Underground Railroad, to move a nation. They had to have faith in a greater purpose for themselves and the world. To make it through this life, we need to find our sense of purpose, to orient and support ourselves amidst the fragmented pulls of our busy lives and the chaos, devastation, hatred, and destruction that seems to be continually escalating in this world we live in. We must have some survival tools that actually allow us to thrive and to be a contribution to others. We can begin here by taking refuge. Refuge offers support for our journey as we move through the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows in a lifetime, through gain and loss, through peace and chaos. In taking refuge, we reaffirm and remember our sacred connection with each other, with the world. Refuge is not necessarily religious. Refuge can be as simple as making conscious our trust in a lineage of teachings. We may take refuge in a higher power such as AA, where it is shown that such faith has proven to be transformative for thousands of people around the world. Much of the success of the 12-step programs and other support groups rests on faith and in the power of their sangha, the conscious community that is created. We thrive with faith. Our faith may be spiritual or clearly non-religious, a faith in the natural world, in the unborn generations ahead, in life itself. To live wisely, we need to find a trusting connection to the world. Taking refuge reorients our life. Our refuge becomes a touchstone, a wellspring to draw from at every challenge we face. In this tradition, we include in our training 
taking refuge as we did last night and this morning. In Buddhism, taking refuge is the door we walk through as we engage, integrate, and metabolize the words and the practice on our journey to freedom. We take up an examination into where do we find ourselves looking for a safe place, a sanctuary. Where do we find that? And then taking another look, do we really? What do we rely on? So a couple of weeks ago, um, I went on a retreat for myself called the Lost Coast Retreat. And this retreat happens, uh, it's along where Highway 1 runs, but there's not enough land, so Highway 1 has to go in land. And the only way to get to this particular place where this retreat center is, is to walk in nine miles. So my girlfriend and I, we had talked many years about doing this together. We were going to do pieces of the Appalachian Trail, but this opportunity came up and we're both meditators and like retreating, so we thought we'd give this a try. She's 68, I'm 62. So we trained for like a year. We're like talking on the phone like you do when you're walking. And I was like, yeah, I can do nine miles. That's not anything. But I was training on flat, hard ground in New Jersey. (laughs) Bought all my paraphernalia and my gear. Even made sure I bought my walking shoes way ahead of time so I could break them in before it was time to go on this walk. So we headed out to California, uh, spent three days in San Francisco, and then went to the jump-off point for the Lost Coast. We didn't have to carry our paraphernalia in with us. They flew that in. So all we had was a day pack. (laughs) And we began the walk. I swear, I wasn't a quarter of the way into the first mile (laughs) when I said to her, I can't do this. I I can't, I can't do this. It's like all the everything about trusting, about relying uh, on the intention to move me through where I needed to move through, to trust the practice, Trust the Dharma. Trust the Sangha. Went just out the window. Because I knew in that moment when I said that to her, it was the moment of commitment. If I walked any further than that, I'd have to keep on going for the next eight miles. Because there was no way to come and get me. So she talked me down from the ledge. And this group of 28 people really, for the next nine miles, um, pulled me forward, the Sangha. And each step that I took, mind you, I was the last one all along the way. This is an aside. I was the last one all along the way. And, And we took breaks, but because I was the last one, every time I got to where they were taking the break, they were ready to leave. So I didn't get very many breaks. Uh, 
And I kept moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. And um, it was literally one step at a, mo- of, at a time. And there was a point in the walking where I just started chanting to myself, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Because it was something that was going to be much bigger than I that was going to get me through to finish this nine miles. So we're walking and I, uh, we made it and, and, and Susie, Susie Harrington, one of my colleagues, one of our colleagues and the teachers comes running to the back <laughs> and says, we're almost there. There's only another mile and a half to go. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. The last mile before you could to step up to do the last mile and a half, there was this sheer cliff of five feet that you had to climb up to get to the meadow to finish the mile. And I saw that, and again, you know, almost everybody else is gone. And <laughs> I looked at that, and, and I was done. I was done. A hand reached down from above, not the sky, but the top of the, <laughs> the, top of the cliff sheer. And uh, this gentleman held out his hand, and I looked up at him. I said, you can hold me. I'm a big woman, you know. He said, I got you. And he showed me one place where I could put my foot, which I did. Heave this body up this cliff with him pulling the arm. And Aya Ananda Bodhi, who was the other teacher for the retreat, is behind me. Some of you may have sat with her or know her. And she says to me, I'm going to put my hand on your butt and push. (laughs) So it was a collective effort (laughs) that got me up that uh, cliff so I could finish out that walk. So I told that story, uh, not only because it's a good story, but because really of the immediate Like this taking of refuge is not just something to be done when you come and sit on a cushion or when you go outside and do your walk on a retreat. But this, it's, it's available, this, this holding, this support, this, um, graciousness of heart is only a breath away. But we have to remember that. We have to remember that. Now, there's a whole lot of other things I could have taken refuge in in that moment. What's wrong with me? Why did I choose to do this? It's too late to turn back now. Self-criticism, judgment. Why did Susie let me come? She knew this was going to be difficult. And the piece that I left out was for the whole nine miles, there was not one inch of packed sand. It was all the kind of sand where your foot just sinks into it. So even the people who were from Colorado and California and Utah and all these places where folks climb mountains and walk past and all that stuff, (laughs) they all were saying, oh, this is one of the most difficult, arduous walks I've ever taken. (laughs) I'd left that out. So this practice, this practice is not here to cause us to suffer. We only suffer because we have not practiced wisely, because we have not done what is necessary to let go of ignorance, to let go of our attachments, 
It is important to acknowledge that. Perhaps it is false perception that because we are practicing, we have to be terribly serious and feel that unless we experience some pain or hardship, that somehow something is not quite right. It seems we really have this false belief that unless we go through some kind of hardship, we are not able to let go. It is true that more often than not, unless it hurts, our ignorance is not acknowledged. So whether once or often or every day, to recite the refuges as a reminder out of our habits of conditioning is so simple, yet we take refuge in things like anger and worry. We tend to take refuge in self-pity or pleasure, distraction, obsession with ourselves or others, wanting to indulge in eating or sleeping all the time and then taking refuge in feeling guilty about eating or sleeping. We take refuge in judgments. We have a habituated tendency to take refuge in the non-skillful things, things that make us unhappy. If we did not have reminders, if we did not have skillful means to bring back into consciousness what's really important in life, we would forget ourselves and never see the way out of suffering. As our meditation and mindfulness practice develops, we experience increasing levels of trust in our personal capacity for openness and wisdom, and this gives rise to an appreciation and faith in those people and teachings that support that sense of inner trust. Going for refuge is an act by which we acknowledge the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as guiding ideals. From the Majjhima Nikaya, I believe I may have that citation wrong, but it's a quote from the suttas. There are, O monks, eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishments of happiness that are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and that lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. What are the eight? Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the keeping of the five precepts, the parable of the raft, because the thing is, you know, we learn this practice, we gain understanding, we gain wisdom, we gain clarity, and then we drop all the structure and ride the stream. The parable of the raft in relationship to Dhamma, adapted from the Majjhima Nikaya, monks, I will teach you the parable of the raft for getting across, not for retaining. 
It is like a man who, going on a journey, sees a great stretch of water, the near bank with dangers and fears, but there is neither a boat for crossing over nor a bridge across. It occurs to him that to cross over from the perils of this bank to the security of the farther bank, he should fashion a raft out of sticks and branches and, depending on the raft, cross over to safety. When he has done this, it occurs to him that the raft has been very useful and he wonders if he ought to take it with him on his head or on his shoulders. What do you think, monks? That the man is doing what should be done with the raft. No, Lord. What should that man do, monks? When he has crossed over to the beyond, he must leave the raft and proceed on his journey. Monks, a man doing this would be doing what should be done to the raft. In this way, I have taught you Dhamma. Like the parable of the raft, for getting across, not for retaining. You monks, by understanding the parable of the raft, must not cling to right states of mind and, all the more, to wrong states of mind. In relationship to Sangha, or noble friendship. Then the venerable Ananda approached the Lord, prostrated himself, and sat to one side. Sitting there, the venerable Ananda said to the Lord, Half of this holy life, Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good. Association with the good. Do not say that, Ananda. It is the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. So perhaps for many of you by now, you've begun to recognize that you're not really learning a whole lot that is new. It is more like you are in the process of remembering. The spiritual truths are not out there somewhere, not something you sign on for. It is intrinsically in us, closer than we have allowed ourselves to know prior to taking on these practices. We forget. We don't really listen. We don't remember to listen. There is much about this path that at its core is about forgetting and remembering. Remembering it is the nature of things. The act of going for refuge marks the point where you commit yourself to taking the Dhamma as the primary guide for living one's life. Taking relief from internal and external dangers, one becomes committed to living in line with the principle that actions based on skillful intentions lead to happiness and actions based on unskillful intentions lead to suffering. When we take refuge, it is essentially an act of taking refuge in the doctrine of cause and effect, or kama. 
It is an act of surrender in that one is committed to aligning one's life that is lived with the principles and understanding of cause and effect. To take refuge in this way ultimately means to take refuge in the quality of our intentions, for that's where the essence of karma lies. From the Dhammapada, they go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That's the highest refuge. That is the refuge, having gone to, which you gain release from all suffering and stress. There are a number of ways to help us remember. Meditation, collective rituals, being in nature, reconnecting with a sense of aliveness. The three refuges are also referred to as the triple jewels or gems. They are called this because they are valuable and because in ancient times gems were thought to have protective powers. These gems do create, through practice, the protective powers against greed, aversion, and delusion. Tanisaro Bhikkhu the triple gem far surpasses other gems because in this respect, its protective powers can be put to the test and can lead further than those of any physical gem, all the way to absolute freedom from the uncertainties of the realms of aging, sickness, and death. A person taking refuge in the Buddha is not asking for the Buddha to personally intervene or to provide protection because the mind is the source both of the dangers and of the release. There is a need for two levels of refuge, external refuge, which provides models and guidelines so that we can identify which qualities in the mind lead to danger, and which to release. The internal level is where true refuge is found. On the internal level, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha are the skillful qualities we develop in our own minds, imitating those external models. For instance, the Buddha was a person of wisdom, purity, and compassion. When we develop wisdom, purity, and compassion in our own minds, they form our refuge on an internal level.
On the outer level, we take refuge in the historical Buddha, a remarkably wise human being, the man who pointed the way to inner freedom. Like, that's amazing, don't you think? That here we are sitting 2,600 years later, engaged with uh, philosophy, with a practice, uh, with a heart-opening tool that's lasted all these years from one person's exploration and awakening. That's dope. (laughs) Serious. All right. (laughs) It is not the man Siddhartha Gautama we take refuge in, but the fact of his awakening. Trusting in the belief that he did awaken to the truth and that he did this by developing qualities that we too can develop and that the truths to which he awoke provide a best perspective for the conduct of our lives. We take outer refuge in the Dhamma, the teachings, the teachings of generosity, compassion, and wisdom that bring freedom. The Dhamma, the path of practice the Buddha taught his followers, the words of the teaching, the act of putting the teachings into practice, and the attainment of awakening, awakening as a result of that practice. This three-pointed understanding of the word Dhamma actually acts as a map directing us on how to take the external refuges and make them internal. We take refuge in the Sangha, in the Buddhist community of awakened beings. This outer refuge connects us to tradition and to millions of followers to the Buddha's path. There are two senses of this external level of Sangha. The historical ancestral lineage of the community of monks and nuns and lay people who have practiced the Dhamma and who have gained a glimpse of the freedom that is available and the communities of monks and nuns and lay people who, though may not all be reliable models of behavior, have helped keep the teachings alive for more than 2,600 years. Through their example, we can know that awakening is available to all, and not just the Buddha, and how awakening expresses itself in real life, day to day taking the inner refuge of the Buddha. Taking the inner refuge, we shift from the historical Buddha to the Buddha nature in all beings. We take refuge in the potential for awakening in everyone we meet. The inner refuge of the Dhamma shifts from the outer teachings to the inner truth, to seeing things the way they are. We commit ourselves to follow the truth and live in accord with it. The inner Sangha shifts from the Buddhist community to all beings dedicated to awakening. We take refuge in this stream. Taking the innermost refuge in the Buddha, here we take refuge in the timeless 
consciousness, and the ultimate taste of freedom. As Ajahn Chah explains, we take refuge in the Buddha, but what is this Buddha? When we see with the eye of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body, any history, any place. Buddha is the ground for all being. The realization of the truth of the unmoving mind. The Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, was never enlightened, was never born, and never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. Taking refuge within the Buddha actually keeps us in touch with what is real, what is actually true. That is most probably one of the reasons we tend to forget about it. The meaning of mindfulness is recollection, to remember. We can remember every time we get lost. Lost in being unkind or impatient or being angry or judgmental. We can also remember that we don't have to change ourselves. The compassion of the Buddha nature refuge is that in being awake to what is happening, there is no judgment. We don't have to become somebody who is not angry or who is not impatient. We can actually acknowledge what is happening and accept it in consciousness and in our hearts. As soon as we have this clear vision of what's going on, we realize that it's changing and see clearly the uselessness of struggling to keep things permanent, to keep ourselves as permanent entities. Most of our struggle in life is to create situations where my personality where me will never have to face suffering or endure pain, will never feel embarrassment, ashamed, or guilty. That's why we're so good at forgetting. And we have to learn to remember again. We have to learn to be aware, to have mindfulness in our heart as a refuge and as a protector taking refuge in the innermost dharma, we rest in the eternal freedom. Zen ancestor Huang Po's words proclaim, your true nature is something never lost to you, even in the moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of your own mind the source of all things, your original luminous brilliance. You, the richest person in the world, have been going around laboring and begging when all the while the treasure you seek is within. It is who you are. Taking refuge in the innermost Sangha is to claim the ultimate trust, 
There has been the knowing of this in and over time by those who are awakened. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of this when he said, We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. We cannot fall or fail or be separated from this truth of interconnectedness. When we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, all things become our teacher. Life itself is our teacher, and there comes the realization and proclamation that there is one true nature of which we are all a part. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. I take refuge in the Buddha and the awakened mind. I take refuge in the Dhamma and the noble path. I take refuge in the Sangha of realized beings. By the merit of generosity and the other paramis, may my heart and mind be purified of all defilements, and may I quickly attain liberation for the welfare and benefit for all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.